It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. All right. I am obsessed with Caitlin Clark, the Iowa guard who just shattered the uh, scoring record for women's college basketball. So I decided to check out one of her highlight reels. Uh, And this is not media hype, folks. I mean, she has the quickest release that I have seen since Steph Curry, who she's met. It just, it's almost impossible to defend against. She pops in these 40-foot bombs from back at where the logo is and just swishes them. But in game situations... She's the best passer I've seen, I don't know, maybe since Bill Walton and the Portland Trailblazers. Um, it was one play where it's a fast break. She's coming down at fast speed. And somehow she manages to do a behind-the-back pass to a forward who was ahead of her that went in for an easy layup. Or she can pass it over several defenders to somebody who's under the basket. Um, and then the most incredible thing I saw was a game which was tied only a few seconds left. Caitlin Clark has the ball and she releases it and literally there is 0.1 tenth of a second on the clock and it goes in from while somebody is on her. Uh, I've also seen her throw up a what would look to anybody else like a desperation shot on the run moving forward and it goes in. I, she's incredible. I feel like the Wizards or the Knicks should draft her. What does she have to play in the WNBA? All right. I'm also obsessed with Lindsey Graham, who now is getting a lot of heat from his fellow senators, Republican and Democrat. The Hill has a piece saying that uh, those who've worked for years with Lindsey Graham are absolutely fuming over his decision to oppose a $95 billion uh, foreign aid package. I mean, Lindsey Graham is probably the biggest hawk in the Senate. He'd be happy if we bombed Iran today. And of course, this bill was the fallback position after the bill that included not only aid to Ukraine and Israel, but border security blew up when Donald Trump opposed it. So... 22 Republican senators voted for this bill. Lindsey Graham voted no. And in any event, it's unlikely to pass the House. According uh, from the Hill, senators who thought Graham was on their side feel like he pulled the rug out from under them, especially after last year when he railed on the Senate floor about a budget deal, including not a penny for the war in Ukraine. He didn't like that. Some say he's making a blatant effort to curry favor with Trump. He wouldn't be the only one. One Democratic senator said uh, Lindsey was supposed to be the guy who would work to double Republican support for the bill. This senator said, not quoted by name, he got sucked into the Trump orbit. And he is so zealously about his own self-preservation in South Carolina that he would literally push his mother in front of a train to get where he needs to be. And then adding, I hate to say it because I actually like him. Well, what would this senator be saying if he or she didn't like Lindsey Graham? I don't know. I would never publish a blind quote where somebody gets a free pass to say would push his mother in front of a train. Come on. 
Um, but it does uh, show this piece that uh, uh, Lindsay is in some difficulty in his home state of South Carolina. Uh, oh, a poll here published uh, back in October, 30% of South Carolina voters approved of Graham's performance, rating higher than by only 1% that Joe Biden has in South Carolina. So we can see some of the maneuvering going on. All right, story number one. Uh, there's been a lot of bad news pieces for President Biden. One of them comes from National Review, Noah Rothman. And he actually starts off by saying he thinks Biden will probably win the election by a narrow margin. But then he goes on to cite some polling data. Democratic parties wide lead over Republicans in black Americans' party preferences have shrunk by nearly 20 points just over the past three years. Hispanic adults, adults age 18 to 29, have slid nearly as much. And this is all about the Democrats losing the support of non-college graduates. I mean, it's just such a mirror image that used to be their bread and butter, the working class, people who uh, work with their hands, blue-collar workers. And the, the Republicans were the party that was for an interventionist foreign policy. And, uh, you know, you know the phrase country club Republicans or evangelical Republicans or extremely conservative Republicans. They got more educated voters. It's almost like there's been a flip. Anyway, National Review piece goes on to say that Democrats used to be able to count on the vestiges of the New Deal coalition which includes lots of voters without a college education. 1999, according to Gallup, working-class Americans identified more as Democrats than as Republicans by 14 points. Today, Republicans enjoy a 14-point advantage over Democrats among these working-class voters. Today, only 8% more voters between 18 and 29 associate themselves with the Democratic Party than with the GOP. Smallest gap ever coming into in a presidential election year. So the well-known uh, political analyst Roy Teixeira, cited in this piece, says that this is largely due or in part due to boutique issues. Highly educated voters fix on threats to American democracy, the scourge of racism, climate change, gender pay gap, and so on. These issues do not speak to the concerns of voters who make up a substantial majority of the general electorate. It's as though Democrats simply assume that, as the nation's economic outlook improved, with the retreat of the pandemic, the party's problems with voters, whose primary concerns were as the state of their own pocketbooks, would recede. That hasn't happened. The issues they're most concerned about are crime, yes, inflation, border security. And the Democrats have a big spending advantage, a badly damaged opponent who will spend much of the campaign season defending himself in courtrooms. Democrats have advantages that Republicans do not. But theirs is a fragile 
coalition. And here you might say, okay, well, that's National Review. Okay, here's the data guru, Nate Silver, who definitely leans left. And his piece says, in terms of Joe Biden's status, personally, I crossed the Rubicon in November, concluding that Biden should stand down if he wasn't going to be able to run a normal re-election campaign, meaning things like conduct a Super Bowl interview. That continues to be like one of the biggest head-scratchers that everybody brings up. Yes, it's a huge risk, and yes, Biden can still win, but he's losing now, and there's no plan to fix the problems, other than hoping the polls are wrong or that voters look at the race differently when they have more time to focus on it. Neither is so implausible, and it will likely be a close race, says Nate Silver, but even the most optimistic Democrats, if you read between the lines, are really arguing that Democrats could win despite Biden and not because of him. Biden is probably a below-replacement-level candidate at this point. In other words, he would do worse than anybody you'd replace him with, presumably younger, and not because of him. Americans have a lot of extremely rational concerns about the prospect of a commander-in-chief who would be 86 years old by the end of his second term. Sure, you know that figure by now. It is entirely reasonable, says Nate, to see this as disqualifying. The The fact that Trump also has a number of disqualifying features is not a good reason to nominate Biden. It's a reason for Democrats to be the adults in the room and acknowledge that someone who can't sit through a Super Bowl interview isn't someone the public can trust. To have a physical, the physical uh, and mental stamina to handle an international crisis, terrorist attack, or some other unforeseen threat will be in his mid-80s. In November, there was still theoretically time for another Democrat to enter the race. Now there isn't. So as Ezra Klein, the uh, uber-liberal now with the New York Times, said on his own podcast, the only option is for Biden to step aside. I mean, a lot of pundits are jumping on this, perhaps in response to peer pressure from Democratic leaders. There is a real option, however. Silver saying, don't let anyone gaslight you into believing otherwise. The Democratic convention is not till August. This is an option that Biden, the White House, and Democratic leaders need to seriously consider. It's very far from an ideal option. But if the past couple of weeks are any evidence, it might be, nevertheless, the Democrats' best option for beating Trump, meaning he steps, Biden steps aside at the convention and the convention delegates then have to pick somebody. Of course, it would be somebody who hadn't competed in any primaries, Kamala Harris would undoubtedly be among this group, but Gavin Newsom, Gretchen Whitmer, you know the names. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Let's go to story two. I'm still just flabbergasted, depressed, angry about the killing of Alexei Navalny in a Siberian prison. When the day before, he was joking with the judge and prosecutors at a court hearing 
and look fine. This is fascinating, though. I talked yesterday a little bit about his widow, Yulia Navalny, uh, putting out a very moving video and saying she's going to take over the movement that her late husband led. Well, here's a New York Times piece uh, explaining more about who she is. August 2020, and Yulia was in the gloomy hallways of a Russian hospital looking for the room where her husband lay in a coma. Alexei Navalny had collapsed after being given what German medical investigators would later decide was a near-fatal dose of nerve gas. And his wife, blocked by menacing policemen from moving around the hospital, turned to a cell phone camera held by one of his aides. We demand the immediate release of Alexei because right now in this hospital, there are more police and government agents than doctors, she said calmly. This was featured in an Oscar-winning documentary about Navalny. For more than two decades, uh, Yulia has shunned any open political role for herself, saying her purpose in life was to support her husband and to protect their two children, to make sure they could grow up as children. And now she faces what's obviously a distinct challenge, trying to rally a disheartened opposition movement from abroad with hundreds of thousands of its adherents driven into exile by a repressive Kremlin regime. I mean... Navalny came very close to dying, and then that raised the whole question, which I discussed at more length yesterday, about why he voluntarily went back to Russia in 2021, knowing full well he would probably be in prison and could die, which has now happened. So, while not dismissing the difficulties, friends and associates believe that Lyulia Navalny has a shot has succeeded through what they call her combination of intelligence, poise, steely determination, resilience, pragmatism, and star power. That is quite a testament. And this is the thing I hadn't even considered. She is rather unusually a prominent female figure in a country where well-known women in politics are a rarity, despite their many accomplishments in other fields. Aside from the rural moral authority she's attained through her husband's death, she may benefit from a generational gap in Russia where younger post-Soviet Russians are more accepting of gender equality. But as soon as she uh, made her declaration yesterday, Russian state propagandas machines started cranking into action trying to portray her as a tool of Western intelligence agencies and someone who frequented resorts and celebrity parties. Okay, can you not go to party? If you're a prominent female figure whose husband was the opposition leader, you you can't go to parties that totally discredits you. By the way, uh, this all sorts of leads to Ukraine because of the Russian invasion and brutal deliberate targeting of civilians in Ukraine. Saw a report on NBC from Richard Engel saying that Ukraine is now rationing bullets. They have to count them 
and they can't hold territory anymore. Uh, the Russian troops just took over a city where there were a lot of casualties. The first sizable slice of Ukraine they've taken back since the war began. Denmark's female prime minister has said she will turn over all of her country's ammunition to Ukraine, sort of apologizing to her citizens, but saying it was necessary. Meanwhile, the U.S. stuck in petty congressional politics. I mean, this is it, folks. They don't have enough bullets. They have certain things like drones, but they don't have enough ammunition. What does Donald Trump say about this? Well, after three days of saying nothing, and in response to um, Nikki Haley going on Fox and Friends yesterday and saying Donald Trump hasn't even, you know, bothered to mention Alexei Navalny's death, murder, I should say, he did come out with this true social post. The sudden death of Alexei Navalny has made me more and more aware of what is happening in our country. It is a slow, steady progression with crooked, radical left politicians, prosecutors, and judges leading us down a path to destruction. Open borders, rigged elections, grossly unfair courtroom decisions are destroying America. We are a nation in decline, a failing nation. MAGA 2024. So yes, the former president mentions the death of Alexei Navalny, but you know who he didn't mention? He didn't mention Vladimir. He pivoted away toward those he usually attacks in the U.S. of A. The sudden death of Alexei Navalny has made me more and more aware of what is happening in our country. So, immediate reaction in the press. Uh, Jerry Baker, longtime opinion editor at the Wall Street Journal, wrote a piece titled The Moral Blindness of Putin's Apologist on the Right. He said the only justified reaction was grief, disgust, and unqualified condemnation. Jonah Goldberg, in his L.A. Times column, says Trump cast himself as an American Navalny, and that is a false moral equivalence. Jonah and others, perhaps, went on to say that you can't compare Joe Biden to Vladimir Putin. Why? Well, let's see. Biden doesn't invade other countries for no rational reason. Biden doesn't make sure that political opponents are fall from windows of tall buildings. If you cross Joe Biden, you know, he might criticize you back but he doesn't make sure that political opponents are killed. All right, in sort of a related story is number three, and I, I wrote a column on this today at Fox talking about Trump, NATO, and Nikki Haley. And one of the things I said in the column right up top was that 
You know, the South Carolina primary is this Saturday. And if you look at the last, I did a little more digging. If you look at the last four polls in Nikki Haley's home state, she is trailing by anywhere between 22 and 36 points. That's how much she's trailing Trump by in her home state where she was governor. Now, the gap may be closing a little bit, but if she loses by more than 20 points, for the media, it's going to be the final nail in her coffin, even though she says she's going to go on to Super Tuesday. I can't name right now a state that Nikki Haley will outright win. And that is why you have the Veep Stakes coverage around Trump. You have coverage of how Trump just controls this party. And the Washington Post starts off with an anecdote. When Donald Trump prepared to speak publicly at a NATO summit in 2018, his own advisors didn't know if he would blow up the alliance that's been a cornerstone of U.S. foreign policy since 1949. Minutes before the remarks in Brussels, the then president sat behind a horseshoe-shaped table in a room with his Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, and his national security advisor, John Bolton, as they begged him not to quit the alliance, Bolton recalled. He didn't, not that day. But Bolton said in an interview that he believes Trump would seek to find a way to kill the alliance if reelected. Quote, he's never lost the desire to get out, said Bolton. Now a Trump critic. Well, that's an understatement. Hey, I remember interviewing Trump when his book, The Art of the Deal, came out. This is in New York in 1987. And he said to me then, America's getting ripped off, and I'm tired of it. And he took out a full-page ad, I think in the New York Times, talking about the countries aren't paying their fair share of, uh, on defense. I mean, it wasn't totally about NATO, but I mean, this, he's been talking about this stuff, folks for 40 years. And that's when he was just, uh, you know, uh, it was even before the reality show. I mean, that was just, he was just a real estate guy. The possibility, says the Post, that Trump could turn his back on the U.S.'s closest military, diplomatic, economic, and cultural partners exploded back into the headlines when he made those comments about Russia could do whatever the hell they want to an ally that wasn't meeting the uh, spending guidelines. And Biden came back in front of the cameras. He has been taking more questions lately, which I think is a good thing for him. I don't take sides in these things. Calling that dumb and un-American. Now, if you want to get a glimpse of the kind of coverage that Donald Trump is getting, listen to this from Politico. An influential think tank close to Donald Trump is developing plans to infuse Christian nationalist ideas in his administration, according to documents obtained by Politico. Spearheading the effort, Russell Vaught, who was Trump's OMB director, and is close to him, could be chief of staff in the second administration, president of the Center for Renewing America. That's a think tank. Now, it goes on to say the documents obtained by Politico do not outline specific Christian national policies, which really kind of weakens the piece. 
But Vaught has promoted a restrictionist immigration agenda, saying a person's background doesn't define who can enter the U.S., but rather citing biblical teachings, whether the person, quote, accepted Israel's God, laws, and understanding of history. He believes that the United States was founded as a Christian nation, which my one reaction immediately is, uh, what about that, that little phrase in the Bill of Rights, freedom of the press and of religion, does that not mean anything? Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. So Nikki Haley has been talking a lot about Trump and Putin and Ukraine. And she told Fox's John Roberts, his press conference in Helsinki, where he went and was trying to buddy up with Putin, that's when he sided with Putin's insistence that he hadn't tried to interfere in the 2016 election. Um, Contradicting his own national security analyst. I called him out for that, says Haley, how he was completely wrong. Because every time he was in the same room with him, he got weak in the knees. We can't have a president who's weak in the knees. That's where that stands. Oh, my conclusion is that Haley's pro-military and anti-Russia views would have been a comfortable fit for the Republican Party a decade ago. But that party no longer exists. Number four, the New York Times says the resistance is exhausted. Back in 2017, they donned pink hats to march on Washington, registering their fury with Trump by hundreds of thousands. They captured the House. They won the presidency. But now, Rebecca Lee Funk, founder of a progressive group called The Outrage, is quoted as saying, some folks are burned down on outrage. People are tired. I think the last election, we were desperate to get Trump out of office and folks were willing to rally around that singular call to action. And this election feels different. For Democrats, says the Times, the mission is similar. Now defending the White House, President Biden is trying to resemble, or reassemble, excuse me, that sprawling anti-Trump coalition. Biden has a lot of work to do. Interviews with nearly two dozen Democratic voters, activists, and officials made clear his challenge in energizing Americans who are unenthusiastic about a rematch, are worried about his age, and in some cases are struggling to sustain the searing anger toward Trump that Democrats have relied on now for nearly a decade. Um, A security guard in Pittsburgh said, we're kind of like crises out that the uh, rematch is a dumpster fire. It's crisis fatigue for sure. This is a Democrat who would back Biden over Trump. Uh, Any sense of urgency we have with the 2020 election, I think it's still there in the sense that no one wants Trump to be president, at least for Democrats, but it's exhausting. And here's Republican pollster Whit Ayers saying... Uh, exhaustion is underlying the entire attitude toward our presidential election. When you've got two people that are opposed by 70% of Americans who want a different choice, it creates frustration 
anxiety, and discouragement. And so that's yet another problem for the Democrats, if indeed Biden remains the nominee, which it's hard for me to see that not happening at this point. All right, story five. Now, look, when the FBI informant, Mr. Smirnoff, was indicted by the special counsel, who has been looking into the whole Hunter Biden case. And I said this on Media Buzz on Sunday. That guy had been touted by Fox and a number of other outlets as, you know, he's got all this dirt on Hunter and Joe and Burisma. But now he is alleged to have made it up. And I think that story deserves more coverage than it's getting, especially from outlets who have widely publicized his allegations. Of course, he hasn't been convicted. But I want to switch to something else. And this is a... Others have tackled this, but this is a nice uh, investigative piece by Politico. Back in 2017, so Biden's out of office then, a hospital operator set out to build a rural health care empire with a Philly area consultant. That consultant, Biden's brother, Jim Biden. By the way, I saw a picture of them side by side. I mean, we're talking separated at birth. (laughs) He's almost a clone of his older brother. Now, Jim Biden had no experience running hospitals. He did understand the federal government had ties to labor unions and, of course, the Biden name. And as vice president, Biden had worked a lot on health care. He called for a moonshot. I don't know if he used that word then, he's since used it, in fighting cancer. And for Jim Biden, 67 at the time, his ties to his older brother made up much of his pitch that could help AmeriCorps, the public service federal agency, make money from drug rehab, lab testing, and even cancer treatment. Here's a letter that Jim Biden wrote to the CEO of a Florida company that controlled licensing rights to an experimental cancer treatment the hospital wanted to offer. This would be a perfect platform to expose my brother's team to your protocol. Could provide a great opportunity for some real exposure. The email obtained by Politico documents one of the many ways in which Jim Biden invoked his brother's name and clout. He spoke of plans, plans to give his brother equity in AmeriCorps according to a former AmeriCorps executive, and install him on its board, according to a second former executive. That's pretty blatant. Now, that didn't happen. It was just stuff his brother was saying. He also said that if AmeriCorps could find a winning business model for rural health care, his brother could help promote the company in a future presidential campaign. Well, there you have it. You know, he may be out of office now, but he could run again. You need him. I'm invoking him. Jim Biden offered to secure capital from investors in the Middle East, according to these emails. But there were problems. The company collapsed 
company that Jim Biden wanted to do business with, leave mine unpaid bills, neglected patients. And uh, one patient at a hospital in Kentucky, Americor Hospital, died of cardiac arrest in 2018 after receiving substandard care. So this is a pretty big deal. September, the SEC accused one of Jim Biden's business partners of fraud relating to loans to the company. And Jim Biden's going to be interviewed, um, oh, tomorrow, uh, by the House Oversight Committee. Now, Jim Biden has not been accused of criminal wrongdoing. His attorney says he conducted himself ethically and honorably in all his business dealings. Spokesman for Jim Biden declined to comment. Politico's investigation did not find that Joe Biden involved himself in the firm or took actions on his behalf. Well, without that, what you have is another Biden relative making money off the name through sleazy emails and pitches, just like Hunter did. I'm not going to defend that for one second. However, on the same day Jim Biden received a $200,000 payment from AmeriCorps, he made out a check for his brother, Joe. The White House has said the check was repayment of a loan. So I, I think it brings us back to what is sleazy and has been done by other presidential relatives, but certainly by Hunter and Jim. It's not necessarily illegal. That's not a definitive statement on my part. But still, whenever it comes down to, well, what did Joe get out of this? Did he get any financial benefit out of this? I think that case remains absolutely unproven. Well, thanks for being along for the ride here. Um, take a lot of complex stuff and, you know, try to make it uh, not so much understandable, but just give you a, a, a sharp analysis uh, because you have other things to do than to read these long investigations. Hey, folks, I'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. 